Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, be in verse 9 this morning. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 9. In our, our world today, uh, everywhere you look, there's war and, and conflict. Um, you can't turn on the TV without seeing some form of conflict. It might be some significant international conflict, like a, a dictator, an evil dictator gassing his people, or the response from a warring nation dropping bombs on that nation like we've seen just in the last couple of weeks. We're not short on domestic conflicts either. If you look within our own borders, parties are divided along political lines, along largely ethnic lines, along religious lines. Domestic issues all around us. But it's not just global and national conflict that seems to be all around us. Every last one of us in this room could identify personal conflicts between people that maybe we've been involved in. Conflicts with us directly. Or it might be conflicts that we're observing with our friends. That we're a third party in, but we can see the conflict between them. The point is... Conflicts, animosity, confrontations, and battles don't just stop because you turn off your TV. They're unavoidable. unavoidable. The entire world, from Iran and Syria to the church we attend, has a propensity for conflict. The real question that Jesus is going to introduce to us this morning is what is our responsibility in that conflict? What is our responsibility in that conflict? We know that uh, these conflicts are, are all around us, but as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, what part do I play in it? Now, we're toward the tail end of our study through the Beatitudes. We're actually in a study on the whole book of Matthew, and we're going through it, but we took a, a chance to go week by week through the Beatitudes. And what we've seen so far is that as it started off, we're looking at ourselves. We're looking at poor in spirit. We're looking at mourning over our own sin. And Jesus is dealing with your own heart in the situation. But then he takes a sharp turn and he starts dealing with how we relate to one another. Are we merciful towards one another? Are our hearts pure? Today, are we peacemakers. What I hope we'll see this morning is that there's a great burden placed on us as citizens of the kingdom of heaven when it comes to conflict. And if we're going to call ourselves children of God, then we have a tremendous responsibility, especially within the walls of this church. We have a responsibility towards one another. So let's consider our text this morning. We're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 5, 3 to 12, but we'll be focusing in on verse 9. So read with me. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. 
Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now we've been spending one week on each of the Beatitudes, as I said, and we come to the second to last Beatitude here in verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now this, this statement by Jesus, blessed are the peacemakers, is probably one of the more jarring statements that Jesus makes in this list of Beatitudes. And when I say that, I don't just mean that it's convicting. I mean that it, it should catch his audience slightly off guard when he says this. Probably one of the, one of the most uh, uh, jarring in that sense, that it catches them off guard. It's important to remember the political climate that Jesus' sermon finds itself in. All right, The Jews are in the land of, of promise. They're in the promised land, but they're not living under Jewish rule. And they haven't been for some time. In fact, since their return to the land, they haven't lived under Jewish rule. In our small groups on Sunday mornings, we're going through, as, as Luke said, the book of Zechariah. And if you're in a small group, what you've hopefully seen is that the children of Israel have come out of exile and into, uh, out, out of exile in Babylon and into the promised land. And they're starting to rebuild their temple. And even though they eventually get a central place to worship, the temple that they're worshiping in is, well, it's meager. Let's just put it that way. It's not exactly what they had hoped it would be. And even though they're back in the land, they're clearly not a major threat to anyone around them. The Jews went from being slaves to Babylon, then coming out of Babylon, and now essentially they're under the rule of Medo-Persia. And then eventually Medo-Persia gives way to Greece, and they're under Greco rule. And, now, uh, and then eventually they, they come under the rule of the Romans, which is where Jesus' sermon finds itself. That's the context that Jesus' sermon finds itself in. The Romans are currently ruling, and the Jews have been in their land for 500 years, and they've been under the rule of successive kingdom after kingdom. So here is... Jesus the Messiah coming onto the scene. Imagine this, if you will. Here he comes onto the scene, and the century leading up to Jesus' ministry, the Jews are getting pretty restless under Roman rule. The zealots were a group of, of Jews that in Jesus' day had considered and even attempted a revolt against Roman rule. So at least for many in the crowd, this Messiah that's coming onto the scene was going to spearhead the charge of getting out from under the Romans and claiming the land once again for God's people. So Jesus begins preaching about a kingdom that he's bringing. So there's optimism. Right, And then he actually begins healing people. So not only do people's ears perk up at the term kingdom, but then they see that he actually has power. And so now they're beginning to think that he might be the Messiah. But that's not all. At least for some in the crowd, 
There's, there's some expectation or understanding that Jesus' kingdom is going to drive out the Roman oppression. So as I've mentioned in the past couple of weeks, Jesus then begins outlining a citizen of this kingdom. He starts with the Beatitudes. This is what a citizen of the kingdom of heaven looks like. And where does he start? With the poor in spirit. With those who mourn. With the meek. This isn't the kind of guy that can drive out the Roman army. The guy he's outlining there. Then he gets to this beatitude. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Peacemakers? What a ripoff, some might say. This isn't the kingdom that I had hoped for. What kind of, of kingdom is Jesus bringing? No, 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 no. You don't understand, Jesus. We're beyond the possibility of peace. It's us against them. And if we're going to drive them out, we don't need peacemakers. We need warriors. Blessed are the warriors, it should say, I think you mean. When you place Jesus in his context, the statements that he makes are all the more jarring. You can understand how people might think, wait, wait, what a minute? What, I, I was, okay, maybe I was tracking with you up until you said that, but now what are you talking about exactly? But how do we think about peacemaking in our own context amongst the people that we are surrounded by? There are a couple of important biblical observations that I think we need to make here about this text of what it means to be peacemakers. The first is that Jesus is our model for peacemaking. Jesus is our model for peacemaking. These beatitudes can sometimes be a little bit difficult to preach because there is just one simple statement and they give little to no explanation for what they actually mean. So we have to employ the rest of the book of Matthew, we have to employ the rest of the Bible to get a firmer grasp on what exactly Jesus is meaning here and what he actually wants us to do about it. But before we fill out the meaning from the rest of Scripture, let's make clear what Jesus is saying and what He's not saying. He says here, peacemakers. He, he doesn't say peace lovers. He doesn't even say blessed are the peaceful people. The people that make nice. He makes it very clear that the citizens of the kingdom of heaven are those that actually manufacture peace. Those that come into the situation and begin the peace process. And the reason that this is an important point to make is because it removes the possibility that as followers of Christ, we can simply be innocent bystanders in conflict. It rules it out completely. Peacemaking is an active process. Something that you have to actually sit down and, and make up your mind to actually do. It's settling disputes between combative parties. That's what peacemaking is. Seeing combative parties and intentionally going to the table and making peace between the two. It's not simply being nice to the people that you meet. Although that would be included. Certainly to be a peaceful person would fall in line with this. But it's actually talking about making peace between two people or two groups of people that are in conflict. I'm hopeful that even in the introduction to this sermon that you've already begun thinking or maybe the Lord has brought to mind 
not just conflict on a global scale, but interpersonal conflict that you're aware of. Conflict between people. Let me say unequivocally, there is simply no option for us as Christians to be passive bystanders and to simply say, I'm not going to get involved in it when it comes to conflict. We're called to be peacemakers, but let's also be clear, not called to be busybodies. You can see 1 Timothy 5.13, you can write that down, you can look at it later. We're not called to be busybodies, we're actually called not to be busybodies. And there sometimes can be a fine line in between the two, when to get involved and when not to get involved in a situation. To get in your mind the difference between the two, the busybody would be kind of like that golfer that we all know. Uh, you know who I'm talking about. You go play with them, and you're on the tee box. You hit one, and it just takes a hard right and starts heading for the woods. And you stand there, and you're just frustrated that the ball has gone into the woods. And you hear him behind you. <clears throat> you want me to tell you what you're doing? Now he's gone to meddling, all right? It's none of his business. There's a morally neutral thing that has just happened. My ball has gone in the woods. To step into something where it really doesn't matter. Kind of like that neighbor, even, that comes over and just goes, Yeah, I saw, saw a lot of cars in front of your house last night. What, 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 what was going on? Meddling in affairs. Morally neutral affairs. That don't really concern them. No, no, no. That's not what we're called to be. We're not busybodies that are meddling in affairs that don't concern anyone else. A peacemaker is dealing with conflict. That's very clear. A peacemaker is dealing with conflict. And here's the reason why. Conflict doesn't happen in isolation. It doesn't happen in isolation. Conflict consumes and it divides and it wants anyone close enough to see it to choose sides and take up arms. When a friend is telling you how awful this other person is, implicit in the conversation where they're telling you how awful this person is, is the question, whose side are you on? And obviously they're telling you because they want you on their side. Don't you see why I would be mad? Don't you think I should be justified in my anger? What steps should I take to really get revenge on this individual? They want you to take up sides because conflict doesn't rest until everyone has taken up arms and chosen a side. Now, this is the only time the word peacemaker is used in all of Scripture. But... It's pretty clear that Jesus stands out as the shining example of this kind of peacemaking. And, and, and the reason is not least of which because Isaiah calls him the Prince of Peace, says of the Messiah that he's going to be the Prince of Peace. But we see it most clearly in Ephesians 2, 11 and following. You should see it on the screen behind me. You can follow along. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, 
alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The peacemaking process for Jesus in this passage was to come in between two warring parties. And it says that He accomplished this in a twofold way. First, It says that he reconciled Jew and Gentile, these warring parties. He reconciled them together. He, in his his body, is now one flesh, Jew and Gentile. It says the Gentiles were strangers and aliens, and Jesus made both parties, Jew and Gentile, one by his blood. So now there's no more a dividing wall of hostility between these two warring factions, but both are one in Christ. But the second part of the peacemaking process is in verse 16, where he reconciled both parties, Jew and, Jew and Gentile, to God. He killed the hostility, both our hostility towards God and God's wrath towards us. He killed the hostility. So Jesus is the quintessential peacemaker. And he did what was necessary to create peace, which of course for him meant death. There was absolutely no other way that peace between us and God or between Jew and Gentile could ever be achieved except that Jesus come down and die on the cross for our sins. And it's on the cross that God poured out the wrath that he had for us on Christ instead of on us. That's how peace was achieved. And not only that, he gave to us his righteousness. Therefore, whenever God sees us, He doesn't see someone that He has wrath towards. He sees Christ Himself. Isn't that amazing? So here's one side of Jesus, the peacemaker. He's sent by the Father to make peace between God's people and God and to make peace between Jew and Gentile, to put together one body. And he also stopped at nothing to make this peace. So if we're looking at Jesus as the shining star, the king of peace, as it were, then it should show us to what lengths we're to go to make peace between people. We stop at nothing, even death itself. But that's not all to Jesus the peacemaker. There's another example in Matthew 10, 34, where Jesus actually says about his own mission in regards to peace. He says this. Again, it should appear on the screen behind me so you can follow along. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. 
I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Well, now, what do we do about that? It is interesting that although Jesus is the Prince of Peace, He says here about Himself that He is coming not to bring peace, but to divide. In fact, if you think about the mission that Jesus left to His disciples... If you read through the book of Acts, they're continuing on the mission that Jesus has left for them. It's not exactly one of peace. They start riots in Ephesus. They turn synagogues into lynch mobs coming after them. Quite the opposite of peace. People are out to kill them. This is the paradox of Jesus' form of peacemaking. What he's seeking to bring is not artificial, sweep it under the rug, peace. He's coming to bring true and lasting peace. And the truth about our culture and the vast majority of people is that they don't want actual peace. What they want is to fight. Jesus is bringing the gospel into the war. And the reality is that most people don't want it. This shouldn't come as a surprise to you. If you're ever in a conflict, I know this is true of me, if I'm in a conflict and I'm sitting down telling somebody about the conflict that I'm in, I don't want the peacemaker bringing up my sin. I don't want the peacemaker to ask me, well, what part did you play in this conflict? In fact, that frustrates me to no end. I don't want them to ask me about my sin. True peacemaking isn't to be confused with simply making nice. But most of what qualifies as peace in today's world is just simply an agreement to get over it and be quiet about it. But true Christ-following peacemaking is not only vaulting ourselves into the middle of the conflict, but it's doing so with the gospel message. Asking the difficult questions, what part did you play in this conflict? Think about a conflict that you've had with someone recently, even within the last couple of years. Remember two weeks ago, we talked about blessed are the pure in heart? And I told you at the beginning of that sermon that even just studying and reading that that verse that week was very convicting for me because I realized the wickedness in my own heart. And and most of you had, or a lot of you had said the same things after the sermon, that 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 the the passage was, was really convicting for you as well. 
So if it's true that in any given situation, our hearts are rarely, if ever, completely pure, then it's right for a peacemaker to ask the question, what part did you play in this? Friend, where is the impurity in your heart creeping up? I get that this person did you wrong or may have said something wrong. I get that they've done these things or they've said these things, and that's not right. But are you completely innocent here? In fact, you're bringing me into this situation. Have you ever gone to tell them that? Because most frequently the issue in making peace is simply having the two sides talk to one another. Most are content to just go and gossip about it and not actually deal with the person involved in the conflict. The irony here is that the peacemakers are often the ones that get attacked. We have to look no further than Jesus himself. The expectations of the children of God's kingdom is not only that we follow Jesus in playing the role of peacemaker, and not only that we do it with the central truth of the gospel, but we do so knowing that we're, we're doing it at the risk of our own lives. We're doing it at the risk of our own security, at the risk of our own reputation. We risk being ostracized by both parties. Jesus' form of peacemaking flies in the face of what we often think of as peacemaking. Too often, our version of peacemaking is simply just ignore it. Sweep it under the rug. Don't say anything about it. Don't ruffle any feathers for Pete's sake. We just want to keep the peace. This is not at all what Jesus is doing or telling us to do. In fact, if Jesus would have kept the peace that way, we'd all be destined for hell. Every last one of us. Following Jesus as peacemakers means that we often do what we don't naturally want to do. It means that we care about the sin in the lives of the people around us. Amen. The second biblical observation for being peacemakers is we demonstrate the nature of God to the world. We yes. demonstrate the nature of God to the rest of the world. Yes. Jesus says here at the end of this beatitude, for they shall be called sons of God. And there's a reason why this is an appropriate thing to say about peacemakers. Now think back before the Industrial Revolution. Before the Industrial Revolution, if your dad was a blacksmith, what were you going to be? A blacksmith. If your dad was a baker, what were you going to be? You're going to be a baker. And the reason is because the son is doing what the father did. He's following after the footsteps of his father. He learned his trade from his father, and therefore he's doing what his father did. So Jesus is saying that the title, Sons of God, is reserved for citizens of the kingdom because they pattern their lives after the actions of their Heavenly Father. They are called Sons of God. And what we see in God is the one who sent Christ to make peace. Paul says it like this in Colossians 1, 19-20. For in Him... All the fullness of God, that's in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to God's self all things, 
whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of Jesus cross. So God is making peace with his children through the blood of Jesus. And his children, we then make peace. We follow suit. We're patterning our lives after the actions of our Father. And we're demonstrating to the rest of the world how dedicated to peace he actually is. But do a careful examination of your own life. If people are looking at you and determining what God is like, what do they think God is like? What do they see in you? Do they see a, a fight looking for a place to happen? Or do they see a peaceful person looking to impart peace and make peace between people. But it's not only God's character that people see when they watch us. They're also observing the nature of God's kingdom. They're looking at the nature of God's kingdom. James 3, 13 and following says it like this. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So James is addressing brothers and sisters in Christ. He's addressing a family of believers. And you'll see as you look at this passage, there are many of the Beatitudes that come to the surface here. In fact, I even wonder if he might have the Beatitudes in his mind as he's pinning this paragraph. You can see them there. He says the conduct of the kingdom people should be pure and sincere, peaceable, meek and gentle, and righteous. And all of these terms you're going to find in the Beatitudes as you read down them. All of these terms Jesus is using to describe citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And James is saying, the conduct of the church, of the local body, should be a snapshot of God's kingdom. So when people see the behavior and the interactions of the saints together, they understand not only what God is like, but what his kingdom is like. The church is a snapshot of God's kingdom. It's kingdom citizens all living together. No, we're not perfect, but we're together. And this is how we interact with one another. I think it was Jesus that once said, they will know you are my disciples by the love you have for one another. It's not just simply preaching Christ with our words, it's preaching him with our actions as well. Both and. Now, conventional wisdom will tell you that when visitors walk in the door, when new people come into this assembly, 
and they look at our church and they're taking a survey of what kind of people are here, conventional wisdom will tell you that if there is conflict between people, just keep it quiet. Sweep it under the rug. For Pete's sake, don't mention it. You'll scare them off. Good grief. We want them to see the best side of us. But that's not an authentic community. That's a Stepford community. It's trying to spray cologne on a corpse. It's not real life. In reality, what people need to see is not a church where no problems exist. They're not fooled into thinking that that's actually a reality. Of course, there are problems that exist within church walls. But a church where problems are dealt with, where sin is called out, and brothers and sisters are called to repent of their iniquities. That's the community that we're striving for. It's a a church full of kingdom citizens that recognize that hostility exists and voluntarily get in the middle of it. That refuse to sweep things under the rug, but call both parties to repentance. That call both parties to faith in Christ as an example of Christ's own peacemaking. That's the community that's following Christ's example of peacemaking. That's a radical kind of faith that offers something to the world that they can't get outside of Christ. It reiterates the gospel message to the watching world. Listen, you cannot come to Christ without recognizing your own hostility toward God. You cannot come to Christ without recognizing that He is the only peacemaker between you and God. And as God's covenant people, in constantly calling people back towards repentance and reconciliation, we're reiterating the message of the gospel, the message of forgiveness and peace with God. And as we saw in Ephesians, peace with God means peace with each other. I think for any, if any of you have been here for any length of time, you have probably recognized that there are bumps along the way. If you've been in a church for any length of time, you'll probably recognize that there are bumps along the way. We're not a perfect congregation, and we never will be on this side of glory. But church, Christ calls us to be peacemakers. These are the kind of kingdom citizens that we have to be. And I think there are a couple of things that that definitely means for us going forward. First, it means that we have to settle any unresolved personal tensions. We have to settle any unresolved personal tensions. Listen to what I mean by that. These are tensions, these are conflicts where you are one of the offended or offending parties. Where you're involved in this. You're having to be your own peacemaker in this process. Listen to what that means. If you didn't intentionally resolve it, it's not resolved. Don't think just because you're getting along well with that other person or that y'all had a lot of pleasant conversations since the event happened, that it is in any way resolved. 
It's not. We've just swept it under the rug and we've forgotten all about it. It doesn't matter how many good interactions exist between now and then. If you didn't actually step in, sit down at the table, and resolve the conflict, it is not resolved. And that means that you're actually going to have to reach out to the other person. That means that you're going to have to take them out to lunch, take them out to coffee, sit, just set up a meeting with them in some way where you can sit down face-to-face with them and resolve the tension that's there. Simply moving on, walking outside of these doors after the service is over, knowing who you have conflict with or who you have had conflict with, and just resolving not to do anything about it is not following Christ's example of making peace. It's failing to follow Christ's example of making peace. Second thing is that we need to settle any unresolved corporate tensions. Settle any unresolved corporate tensions. This is where, this is where it gets awkward. I'm not going to lie to you. This is where we actually become a family, though. This is where you bring up to your friend later, hey, how's it going with that person that you were talking about the other day? Have you made an effort to go actually talk to them about this problem? If you know of conflict within this body, especially within this body, it is well within your right to step in the middle of it. To actually make peace between two warring, conflicting parties. We have to change our view of sin altogether. One way of looking at sin is, I'm ashamed of it. I don't want anybody to know about it. I just want to ignore it and move on. That's one way of viewing it. Instead, the way we need to think about it is, its desire is to rule over you. I'll watch your back, you watch my back, so it doesn't get us from behind. Sin is something that we fight together, as a group. And part of that means, as peacemakers, we wander into the fray, sit both parties down at the, at the table, and actually forge peace. And it comes at great risk to you. You risk being shot by both parties. But what a great testimony your life will be to the brothers and sisters in your midst. A person who sought peace between others. A person who refused to let us sweep things under the rug, but wanted to come together in true Christ-like reconciliation. Christ didn't sweep your sin under the rug. He dealt with it. Let's go and do likewise. In a moment, we're going to pray. We're going to sing. Our ushers are going to come forward and pass out the offering. As we do so, I want us to think. Identify those areas in our lives where there is conflict with other people. And let's vouch today to be peacemakers. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, you made peace with us. You made it. Without your first step, there, there would be no faith on my part. So, Father, we come before you recognizing that as children in your kingdom, you have forged peace with us through your Son. And, Lord, we're grateful. how hard and difficult it is to live in this body of flesh, to deal with brothers and sisters around us, and how often we fail to extend grace to others. Lord, I pray that as we reflect on Christ as the shining example of a peacemaker. That you would grow in us the passion and the desire to see righteousness and justice pervade in our congregation. To see peace forged between two parties that previously had not seen eye to eye. Lord, I pray that if that exists in this congregation, you would weed it out. Our desire is to swallow it and say nothing. But I pray that we would not be able to keep silent on this. But that we would bring all of us under the word that we would all recognize what it means to be peacemakers. And at the risk of our own reputation, we would voluntarily walk into the fray. Lord, you can do that in this body, and we pray that you would. In Jesus' name.